and we're accepting the fact that trauma is real and that trauma exists on a spectrum. And just because the trauma that somebody comes in with doesn't get listed through the American Psychological Association doesn't mean that it's not valid. In this episode, Dana Carr teaches us about cultivating healing spaces, strategies for wholeness and well-being on a community level. Taken from the 2019 CCDA National Conference, we now join her workshop in session. Uh, My name is Dana. I'm thrilled that you all are here today um, and thrilled that you all were so early and on time. Um, So we're going to press through several things today. Um, and hopefully this will be a great discussion for all of us. We have so many people. Some of you guys who are sound sensitive realize just how many people we are because that was a very loud five minutes. I'm sorry. Um, it's going to be hard for us to have a whole lot of discussion during this time because it just will get overwhelming. Um, but we'll have some time at the end for questions and maybe some time for you to whisper comments um, if you really feel like you need to get something out. Um, so one thing I want to tell you is a housekeeping item before we get started. Please do fill out the CCDA survey. Also, I will send... That's right. And she has more if you need one. Um, I also have some small ones. And here's the caveat. Okay. There are three little questions. One, you write a number. One, you write the most helpful part of the... Um, yeah, the number is a ranking, right? One is this was terrible. Ten is it was great. Um The next, the most helpful part of the workshop, it could be two words, okay? And then the last thing is what you wish it would have covered or explained more thoroughly. If you fill this out, one, you will make me very happy, and it's an easy way to show your appreciation for this time. But two, I'll send you the slides, okay? So you don't have to worry about taking pictures. You don't have to worry about all that. I will send you the slides, and I'll send you some extra um, uh, just resources and, and links and places you can go. If you don't fill this out, I'm not sending you anything, okay? If you write your email on it and you don't answer the other questions, I might send you the info, but also I'm not going to be smiling while I do it. So just do me a favor because it'll take you two minutes, okay, and do this for me. Um, Towards the end, um, yeah, I'll get a couple of volunteers. Since we don't have an official volunteer, you guys can all volunteer. Okay, so are we ready to go? We're ready. Okay. So there's three main parts we're going to cover today. We're going to look a little bit about trauma, stress, um, ACEs. Are some of you guys familiar with ACEs? Yes. Okay. So we're going to chat about it a little bit. A lot of this stuff is very available online once you realize what it is. Okay. So we're going to talk about those things a bit to frame us out. Um, We're going to pause for a minute there in the middle um, as that settles to talk about scripture for a couple of minutes because we need to stay rooted in that. And then we're going to move into um, trauma-informed community building strategies, right? So we hear a lot about trauma-informed education, trauma-informed healthcare. We don't always hear a lot about grassroots level ways to be trauma-informed and how to integrate that work. Um, So that's where we're going to spend the bulk of our time at the end and um, hopefully have some time to talk about our own context and how we can make that happen, okay? Okay. So my name is Dana. I already told you that. I live in Greensboro, North Carolina. I've been doing community development in a neighborhood for 15 years. Um, I grew up in rural poverty, so in the backwoods of Florida. If anybody's familiar with Panama City area, um, that is where I grew up. My family just lost all of their homes in Hurricane Michael um, and are still bouncing back. I think yesterday was the one-year anniversary, and so um, rural poverty, as I I know most folks at CCDA tend to work with city poverty, but... um, Rural is a real, it, it's, the, it's, it's the same thing, a little different, right? Fewer resources, all the same place. Um, 
So my whole life really has been immersed in in poverty, communities of poverty, um, with the exception of a very few years. Um, and so a lot of this comes out of my own story and my family's own story, right? That's the driving force, but then also what I've continued to experience now. Um, so the neighborhood I'm in um, is a neighborhood of about 2,000 folks uh, close to downtown Greensboro. It's one of the most diverse communities in the city. Um, and it is quickly gentrifying because the university is buying up our neighborhood. Um, and so rents are skyrocketing and it's a, it's a tricky time. So, um, and I know some of y'all understand that too. Um, so uh, my interest in this topic really came in part the first time I bumped into ACEs, which we'll talk about if you're not familiar. It's the Adverse Childhood Exper um, Experiences Survey. It was really disrupting to me to discover how high my own ACE score was, right? And it's like, okay, I'm doing all right, right? There's some, some good feelings of that. Um, but also you realize just how uh, all the nuances of everything wrapped up in that, right? And so really just had, um, wanted to learn more and more and more and dig into that. Um, the other piece is that through the years of community ministry, I'm sure we can all think in our own context of people that we look back and say, man, they have it, right? It's one of the smartest kids I've ever met, right? Gets along with everybody, has a good head on their shoulders, and then they totally tank at some point, right? Or adults that we meet, right? Some of my homeless friends, man, they're some of the most brilliant people I know, it's like, how did this happen? And I think a lot of times, right, there's this unresolved trauma. There's ongoing life stress. There's all these things that are happening that a lot of folks will say, well, they just need to get it together, right? Like, you just have to keep moving forward. But we have to deal with the root issues, right? And so that's really where the heart of this work comes from, um, is pressing into that. And so recognizing that when people have deep trauma, you need individual um, approaches to that, right? Like, I went through a lot of years of counseling. I recommend most people I meet go to lots of years of counseling to get some things worked out. Uh, but we also, as CCDA folks, right, we recognize uh, the inherent dignity, the humanity, the imago day of the individual, but we also recognize the power of the systemic, right, and that we have to hit things on a system level if we're going to see change. And so you have to have both hands, right? You have to have individual relationships, you also have to have system level approaches. And so as I've entered into this work, that's really been the question, right? Is how do we help our neighborhoods, our communities, whatever your context is, how do we help our organizations become a space that actually encourages healing in the individual, right? So it's not so much, let's set up a yoga program and hope that people will come and find healing. That's a good thing, right? But how does the space of the community become a healing space? Um, and so that's some of what, what we're going to press into. So we're going to start a little bit with, um, with ACEs, trauma, stress, a little bit of discussion around this. We have 75 minutes together, which is a tiny amount of time. So you're going to identify things that you think, man, she left this out. And, oh, she should have talked about that. We have 75 minutes, friends. Okay. So make note of those things and add it on your little sheet. So, um, the ACEs survey, if you're not familiar, it breaks, it's a list of 10 indicators um, that identifies childhood adversity um, broken into a few major categories. So it looks at abuse, it looks at neglect, it looks at household dysfunction. Now, if you see those things, um, so physical abuse, emotional abuse, sexual abuse, uh, physical neglect, emotional neglect, mental illness, 
Um, mothers who were treated violently, divorce, substance abuse, having a relative who's incarcerated. Those are all big things that disrupt the lives of a child. Can you think of some things that are missing? You could just holler. What's a couple? Okay, health. Uh-huh. What else? Okay. Yep. So, yeah, when, when um, parents don't have a job. What else? Okay, foster care. That's right. Community violence. Okay, food insecurity. Yep. So there's so many things, right? The ACES survey and the the ACES study really was a a groundbreaking study because nothing of this scope had ever been done before. Um, So it was a few doctors out of Kaiser Permanente who led the study. They had a sample size of 17,000 people. Okay, that's huge for this kind of work. And so when you do community work, you know that these things impact people, right? And we can see the impact. But sometimes we need some data to back that up. And that's what this study did, okay? So they, they, they did the surveys. They tracked it. Um, this was some of the prevalence. So the prevalence that came out of it, 26% of those 17,000 people um, had one ACE indicator, right? The easiest one, I would say, easy is a bad word, but probably one of the more prevalent is maybe they had divorced parents, right? When you look at our nation's divorce rate, Um, 16% had two aces, nine and a half percent had three aces, 12 and a quarter or 12 and a half percent had four aces or more. Uh, There's a good chunk that have none, right? About a third of the sample size had none at all. Okay, but when we look at our communities, a struggle some of those some of those folks might only have one or two. I think the prevalence tends to be a whole lot higher, right? Um, so general estimates, about 28% of folks, um, physical abuse was the one that they experienced. Um, emotional neglect, sub- household substance abuse. A lot of these things tend to be um, coinciding issues, right? Um, so anyways... A lot of prevalence, but here's the big, this is the, the more exciting part that came out of it, is that they were able to establish a direct link to health outcomes to say the higher a person's ACE score, the worse their health is in the long term. And so if you look at the pyramid, that's from the study, right? It starts a baseline of you experience adversity in childhood. Next, you see impairment in social, emotional, and cognitive development. Do we see that in some of our kids and adults that we work with? Right. And then the next step is adoption of health risk behaviors. So you've got a high schooler who starts smoking weed consistently. Right. Part of that probably comes back here. Right. Um, Disease, disability and social problems comes next and early death at the end. Is this prescriptive? Does it happen to every person who experiences a high number of ACEs? Not at all. But it does help develop some understanding. And so some of the behavioral things, lack of physical um, activity, there are links to obesity, right, and and to excessive weight that goes back to adverse childhood experiences. Can we think of people that we know that to be true? Here's some data to back it up, right? Um, Smoking, alcoholism, when you go physical and, and mental health, depression, um, that, that feels like an obvious one to me, right? Like, of course, if you have a really rough childhood, you're going to be prone to depression. Uh, but it is helpful to have it, um, to have it documented. Broken bones, that's an interesting one, I think. Um, there's a higher, um, higher um, co-occurrence of that with folks who have high levels of ACEs. Um, so there is a lot of national data that is very widely available. Uh, there's a lot of um, folks have really been pressing into this. 
I think it's helpful to an extent, but also as practitioners, we don't have the time to get lost in just the research forever, right? The research is fun, but we need to, to, to make practical things out of it. Now, the next thing I want to talk about briefly is we listed a bunch of things that weren't on here, right? And so the validation in that, um, there's a guy, Robert Scare, who um, wrote a book called The Trauma Spectrum. And so he talks about trauma as a spectrum, right? And so where the ACEs study identified very specific things, right? And there are other traumas that people certainly would recognize. Um, he really proposes a broad spectrum um, and includes what he calls negative life experiences. I really like his definition, okay? So he starts... Um, with catastrophic events, which could be things like experiencing war, experiencing extreme violence, those impact a person, right? And then on the other end of the spectrum, he lists little traumas. And some of his little traumas I don't feel like are that little, but that's fair. Um, so childhood neglect, oh, that's a small thing, right? <laughs> uh, motor vehicle accidents, that can be really traumatic for kids, right? Especially depending on what the rest of their life, um, what other things they're experiencing. Exposure to violence via media and popular entertainment. That's a big one now, right? Every time that there is an unjust police shooting, those videos play over and over and over and over. And the exposure is helpful because it calls people to accountability. But there's also a level of trauma and re-traumatization that our children of color and adults of color experience over and over and over. Right. And that certainly folks outside the white folks, I'm sure, experience some level of trauma, too. But our, our kids of color don't need to be experiencing it over and over and over. Right. And so there's a traumatic experience that comes with that. Um, he lists a few other things. These are not in any certain order. So don't place them on the spectrum. I just dropped them around. OK. Um, unrecognized societal trauma, personal debt that can be traumatic. Um, one that I thought was really interesting you talked about was maternal stress, the trauma of maternal stress to in utero fetuses, right? So we're talking about babies still in the womb experiencing trauma because of the stressful lives of their mothers. The broken healthcare system, the trauma that people who are ill experience with a broken healthcare system. I have a family member right now who has congestive heart failure and has been in and out of the hospital for the last few months straight, and all of her prescriptions are unaffordable, and she's in the donut hole of Medicare, right? So there's nothing. What do you do? That's traumatic. Um, racial injustice and microaggressions, right? That's, um, it's there, right? Racial trauma is significant. The chronic absence of family, um, family intimacy. So when you're in a family, but you exist together, and that's it. Right. And there's not the love and the kindness and the interaction that a healthy family might have. That's traumatic. One of the girls that I think of often, she was one of my first friends in the neighborhood. Um, she just took me under her wing as her little nine year old self and showed me all the ways. She was one of those kids. It was super bright. Right. And that we knew she could easily whatever she wants to do. She could be a doctor. She could go to law school like she's got it. Right. She has friends everywhere, but she knows how to balance those relationships. She doesn't get in trouble, but she could put somebody in their place real quick if she needs to. Right. Like she just had it. And in high school, her mom moved out and moved in with her boyfriend um, and helped raise his kids and left this young woman and her older brother and younger brother, all high school age to just live by themselves. And all three of them derailed. Right. Like she would pop in once a week and drop off food. 
But when you have three high schoolers running a household, it's not going to go super well, right? And so she's still just as bright as she ever was. That doesn't change. Uh, But her life has taken a very different trajectory. And she's still handling her business, right? Like, I have no doubt that she's taking care of things. But it's been a much harder road because of what's happened. Um, And so it's important. We all know this, right? Like, (laughs) we know that these things are traumatic. We know that they impact a person. But we do need to sit with it, right? And we do need to think through as we're planning programs, as we're fundraising for programs, as we're investing in our neighborhood, how do we bring this to light in a way that people are going to see and believe, right? And so some of that is with anecdotal stories. And then some of it um, is that we need to validate some data. And so um, National ACEs data is very widely available, There is not a ton of ACEs data available on the neighborhood level, right? But the good thing is that there is more and more neighborhood level data coming available every year. Um, So the CDC has the Behavioral Risk Factor Surveillance System data. (laughs) Um, That is a, a data set you can easily access online. You can pull it up by census tract, and then you can look at certain indicators, So you can't look at all 10 of the ACEs. You can't necessarily drill down to that. But you can pull up divorce rates. You can pull up the number of people in that census tract who have experienced poor mental health, self-described poor mental health in the last seven days, right? The number of people who have had more than, I think it's more than five poor mental health days in the last month. Um, But as you look through that, there's some really interesting data that you can pull and say, okay, based on this, there's a clear correlation that we can see um, mental health issues, right? So when one of the ACE questions asked, did you live with a person with severe mental illness or with mental illness, there are some things that we can extrapolate and make connections to, right, to be able to localize our data. Sometimes you'll find data points that aren't included, right? So in my county, the teen pregnancy rate is 20%. As I was looking around, our neighborhood's teen pregnancy rate is 39%. I was like, holy smokes. One, I feel like I don't see pregnant teenagers very often. Um, So that's a growth edge for us, right? Is where are these girls and how can we get connected and support and love them well? That's That's not collected here. But as we start to press into the data, that's a traumatic experience, right? And when we look at the little trauma of in utero stress, Um, in utero trauma to mothers who are stressed, a teenage mom who probably is experiencing um, pressure from her peers, right, and disappointment, maybe her parents or her grandparents are not supportive. She's carrying all kinds of stuff on top of normal teenage hormones, right, (laughs) which is traumatic in itself. Um, And so we see spaces where we can where we can enter in. Um, The census census data is great. You can really get into a lot of good information there. Um, I tend to prefer, in terms of demographics and a few other things, um, education data, right? Because we all, uh, there's plenty of people who don't respond to the census, right? But kids in a school absolutely get counted because they turn into dollars for that school. And so demographically in our community, we have barely any Latino children or adults. Yet our school system says very differently, Right. And so uh, we know that they're there, but school data answers that question a little bit better for us. Um, The Opportunity Atlas, are you guys familiar with that? Okay. So this is 
excellent. It just came out um, about a year ago, within the last year or so. Opportunityinsights.org, I'm pretty sure is the link. But also, I'll send you that when you fill this out. Um, so <laughs> the guy who put this together pulls all of this data. And so you can look up a neighborhood. And you know, that's actually where I found the, tech, uh, the teen pregnancy rate. Uh, but what's really cool is he tracks mobility. So you can look at a specific census track, and I think it looks at 30-year, it's either 20 or 30-year mobility for kids who who were born in a specific neighborhood. So I could look at the area that I grew up and see this percentage of people left the area, this percentage of people stayed there, this percentage ended up graduating college, right? This percentage has a job making between ten dollars and $15,000 a year. This percentage has a job between 50 and 75, right? And so you also get some projections there. And so again, you have some good growth edges on how do we best approach our community, right? And build it into a place that kids can stay and thrive or that adults can stay and thrive. Hi, I'm Lorenzo. What I love about CCDA is being connected to so many amazing leaders across the country. Welcome to the CCDA podcast. Zip code. So one of the studies that centers around ACEs, the folks made the comment in their report, a child's zip code is more important than his or her genetic code in determining future health and life chances. We see that, right? Depending on what area of town you live in and grew up on, you got all of that. The um, plenary speaker who talked about um, the oil drilling in L.A., right? Um, or she, the, she won the award. Right. That absolutely shows that. Right. When you have higher cancer rates, when you have all the different things. Um, And so we see that in the way that our neighborhoods are developed. Um, Place matters. Absolutely. So Dr. Charles Bruner did a study called Ace Place Race and Poverty, and it was a census tract analysis um, of low income census tracts. And so really pressed into um, what's happening in these different neighborhoods. Um, as a result of his study, his encouragement, because ACEs, I'll say this to you, when we look at ACEs in particular, it tends to be clinical, right? Doctor's offices are using it, um, large um, like counseling agencies, some of those places look at ACEs and are, are attacking it from a clinical level, which matters, right? It absolutely matters. My hunch is that the bulk of us in this room are not clinicians, Right. Which is why we're looking at some of these other pieces. So he encourages movement from exclusively on individual care. Right. You need to go to counseling. You need to go to the doctor. We need to get you plugged in with some individual assistance to a population health perspective. When we start thinking in terms of the population of our whole neighborhood, it shifts the way that we do our work. Um, And so he suggests investing in community building activities which increases the community's capacity to care for its own residents. When our, for our neighborhoods to become healing spaces, that doesn't mean an injection of a ton of outside organizations. It means that the community has the ability to heal itself, right? To care for each other, to step into those places, really in the way that we hear that neighborhoods used to be, right? The old way of loving each other well. Um, Out of his study, so there were four big things that he found um, that we're all going to go, uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. So poor neighborhoods are rich in young children. Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. Poor neighborhoods are very disproportionately home to children of color. 
Differences in terms of income, wealth, education, and social structure are profound and require community building as well as individual service attention. And then finally, every state has these disparities, but they do differ in the composition of the neighborhoods, right? And they differ in the types or the the variety of children who are most affected. So it's a problem everywhere. Whatever state you live in, this is a challenge. It looks a little different, which is why you need to dig into the data for your own community, right? Because your approach is going to look different than the person next to you. It's going to look different than my approach. All right. And then um, community and trauma. So the Prevention Institute and Kaiser Perm um, did a pulled together another report. And so they talked about trauma can be a barrier to the most successful implementation of healing and well-being strategies, including those to prevent violence. The other thing that I've thought about often in this work is how many really great organizations there are in Greensboro, right? We have some great organizations that do job skill building. We have great organizations that do financial literacy. We have great organizations that work on maternal child health, right? All these things and yet when you look around, there are people who they, they're they not even ready to take advantage of those those programs, right? Like they're not at a baseline to even start the process of trying to thrive. And I think for the most part, we go, we can't help everybody. And so we just keep moving, right? Which I get. You can't help everybody. Every We, we, we can't. We have to figure out our lane and do the best we can in that. But my, I always go back to what happens to everybody else, right? And I think Jesus cares deeply about what happens to everybody else. And so that's where these, these deeper roots of how do we help our neighborhoods become healing places matter so much. Because there's a whole swath of the community who they're never, they're never going to make it in a program the way things stand right now. They're just not. And so what do we do for them? Right? How do we love them well? And when do we start to figure out how can they love us well? Right? Like it's a two way street. (laughs) But how do we press into that? Um, So he identified three focus categories of the symptoms that we see in communities and the responses. And so the sociocultural environment, that's the people, right? People matter in terms of the neighborhood. The physical and built environment, built environment is the buildings. It's the condition of the neighborhood. It's the places that exist there, right? Um, So the place matters. And then economic environment. Is there equitable opportunity within that community, that organization, the city, right? So all of those pieces come together. All right. So we're going to pause for a second. Um, This is really where I wanted you to take the deep breath. I just got lost on my slide. So take another deep breath. Okay. Stress is heavy. Right. And as we think, I always find it helpful to think of a couple people. Right. As I think about these things, because it helps root it in my own space. Um, So you may want to think about a couple people um, or a couple organizations or a couple places where you see these things in play. Um, We're going to go through just a couple things here, because I think in the midst of stress, we still want to be and need to be grounded um, in why we're doing this, because it presents the hope that's going to launch us into how we build community. Um, in better ways. Um, So the idea of Imago Day is something that I always come back to over and over and over and is, and that we hear over and over in CCDA, right? 
Um, so Genesis 1, 26 and 27, then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image, in the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. In John, all things came into being through him, and without him, not one thing came into being. And in Colossians, for in him, all things in heaven and on earth were created, things visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or powers, all things have been created through him and for him. And so we know the basics, right, is that when someone is made in the image of God, they bear that image all the time, right? They can't lose the image. They can't throw the image away, right? We could choose not to see it, and it gets real muddied up sometimes. But it doesn't change the fact that they are an image bearer, right? They carry the face of the Almighty God. And that demands respect and honor and love and care, right? And commitment and all of those things. The other thing that I really love about this idea of being made in the image of God, though, is that God exists in three persons, right? So we have Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, which means inherently, right? God exists in community. And if we're made in his image, we are created for community. We are created to be together. We're created to be in relationship, And where we see the breakdown for so many of our friends who are struggling in the community is a breakdown of relationships, right? When you've experienced trauma, trauma isolates on so many levels. Sometimes people isolate you. Sometimes you isolate yourself. Sometimes it's both, right? And so we we see this, right? Like we're drawn back when we recognize we're created in the image of God. And even when we don't recognize it. There's that internal longing to be in community with God and with each other. And so we've got to remember that, right? As we're doing the hard work of building community, when people are jerks sometimes, right? (laughs) That doesn't mean that they're any less worthy of community. It doesn't mean they're any less worthy. Um, The power of presence has also been really helpful in pursuing this. So we see the power of the presence of God in the lives of everybody in scripture, right? But a few of my favorites, when we see the demon-possessed man who's hanging out on the beach, right? The folks in the neighborhood are like, out, you stay over there. Jesus comes up on the beach and encounters the man. Jesus didn't go looking for him. He was there, right? And with a very brief encounter, cast the demons out and the man is restored, right? And so we see just by bumping into him, they didn't have any big theological discussion, This was a short interaction and just coming face to face with God and being reminded of the inherent image, right? When he saw himself in the father, it created change and healing immediately, right? Even outside of, for my charismatic folks in the room, healing is is a real thing, right? And so we see healing, (laughs) Um, but also just that interaction with Zacchaeus. Right? Zacchaeus is like, all right, Jesus is coming. Everybody hates Zacchaeus. Right? Everybody hates Zacchaeus. He's the worst. And so he climbs up in that tree. And just by being seen, there's a transformation. Right? He invites Jesus to dinner. But I mean, before that even happens, he's committing to change his entire life. 
right? Just by being seen and acknowledged. He's given away all the wealth and then some. He's changing his life. And it was a brief interaction. We see it with the Samaritan woman at the well, right? Or the woman at the well. Um, that Jesus sees her now. He does recount her sins, right? And, and calls her to account. But there's a shift because she was seen as she is. Nothing changed. She was seen in her full sinfulness. But she was acknowledged, right? And she was respected. And he in, interacted with her in a normal, loving, kind way. And it changed the game. Totally changed the game. And if, if we're image bearers of Christ also, and we're following the lead of Jesus, I would argue that our presence can also be transformational in people's lives when we choose to interact with them the same way that Jesus did, right? When we choose to see people and to honor people and to interact with them in ways that affirm their dignity. We also see the power of the presence of God in community. So when we are reflecting that image that we were created to, to live and to be in community, that looks like two simple practices that as I was, <laughs> as I was pressing into this, I was like, Lord, really friendship? Is that important? Like that feels like a little thing in terms of all of the great work people do at CCDA, right? And hospitality, that sounds like, you know, something that auntie over there does with her lace tablecloth, right? <laughs> but hospitality doesn't just look like that, right? It doesn't look like that. So Chris Hertz wrote um, this great book, Friendship in the Margins. He says, people who have been exploited need more than a single friendship. They need to be welcomed into a network of friendships and relationships where their presence and gifts matter to the community and where various members of the community can walk with them toward healing. H-E-U-E-R-T-Z. Their transformation then becomes an invitation to the rest of us to recognize our areas of brokenness, further pressing us back to God's redemptive work in our lives and in the life, the life of our community. Right? So we see this need for interconnectedness, not just with one person, but with the community as a whole. Um, Christine Pohl writes a lot about um, hospitality. If, if, if she is a great author to look into um, and really talks about it in an exciting way, right? <laughs> um, yes, Christine Pohl, P-O-H-L. And so she talks about the idea of a stranger, right? And what it means to be a stranger. Um, and so she defines strangers as a people without a place. And talks about being without a place means to be detached from basic life-supporting institutions, which would be things like family, work, polity, religious, community, and to be without the networks of relations that sustain and support human beings. And she concludes, in our society, that means that even our neighbors can be strangers. Right? And so when we're without community, we're, we're lost, Right? We're floating around out here. And the best way to bring people out of that strangeness, right, out of their stranger identity is by welcoming them in, right? And hospitality is that first step to do it. And the choice to enter into friendships that don't make sense, right? To enter in and not just a, a friendship to say, hey, I'm friends with somebody who looks different than me, right? But a real life changing friendship. I need things from you and you need things from me, right? And that together this sense of mutual transformation, right? Our lives are both changed because we're in relationship with one another. 
that's super important. And it's, it's super important as we continue to press into this. Um, and then finally, we're just for a second, shalom, right? So this idea of a deep rooted peace in the community. Uh, Mark Gornick talks about shalom as the presence of right and harmonious relationships imbued with delight and flourishing before the Lord. Um, Andre Van Emeren, I'm sure I'm saying his name wrong. The well-being of the individual in the context of their community um, is how he defines shalom. And then goes on to say it includes good physical and emotional health, a sense of well-being, good fortune, the cohesiveness of the community, relationship to relatives and their state of being and everything else deemed necessary for everything to be in order. And we press into scripture, right? Isaiah 65 talks about a new creation that's coming. One of the things I love in that is it talks about the babies won't die young and the, the adults will live long lives. That's shalom, right? That people are able to live long lives that are flourishing, right? They're not in the struggle for 80 years. They're living good lives in community for 80 years. Romans 8 talks about the creation is groaning for redemption. Do we see that in our communities? Do we see that in the brokenness of people who have experienced stress and trauma and all of those things? There's this desire, right? This urge for, I just want peace. And we turn to a million things looking for peace. It's not always there. Um, and then Jeremiah 29, right? Everybody throws that one out because it's a good one for Shalom. It lays it out, right? But as we seek the Shalom, as we seek the peace, as we seek the flourishing and the wellness of our city, that's where we find our own wellness, right? My well-being is tied up in the well-being of my neighborhood. It's tied up in the well-being of my neighbor, right? A lot of folks, this is a side note, but in the gentrification debates, right? It's like, oh, gentrification is great if you're a homeowner. Sure. But also if my well-being is tied up in the well-being of my neighbor who rents, then we're not well, Right. When they get displaced because rents are going up for college students and they can't afford to be there, there's brokenness. We're not well anymore. It's a traumatic experience for them. Right. Housing insecurity. I don't think we talked about that. That's a major one. That's a major. Yeah. Um, so these these ideas of of of. Just constantly remembering, I think we know things and we don't always remember and God calls us to remember over and over and over in scripture, right? Um, and you hear, I, I, somebody was at some point that um, was talking about preaching. You need to preach the gospel, right? And he said, I, I have to preach the gospel to myself all the time. And I know a really famous person said that in a better way. But anyways, um, that's what my friend said. And I thought, you know, it's the truth. Because when I stop thinking about the fact that my neighbor's reflect the image of God every second of their day in every ounce of their being, it leaves room to get real frustrated, right? And to get ugly. If you're from the South, you know what it means to be ugly to somebody, right? And it's easy to get ugly when we forget the beauty of the creation. Um, and so we've got to remind ourselves of these because we work with, we work with some really great people. We work with some really difficult people too. All right, we're going to press into community building models. There are a lot of models out there, but I want to share with you a couple of my favorite ones. When you start to look into models of tra uh, trauma-informed community building, a lot of them are a clinical, governmental, large nonprofit approach. 
And that is helpful for some folks, right? If that is the arena that you're in, you need cross-sector partnerships, right? One of the big models is about, hey, we need to make sure everybody's here. So we need our local mental health agencies. We need our doctors. We need our social workers. We need all these folks to come on the same page and make sure that things are covered. Also, sometimes we're in the neighborhood and we don't have any big organizations (laughs) and we're just trying to work this thing out, right? Um, And so there's been a slow movement or a new movement really towards this grassroots um, community-centered community building, right? Because what happens if the nonprofits lose funding? It all stops. But if we can find some things that are rooted in the community and don't cost a ton of money, then they're sustainable, right? Um, So the first one we're going to chat about is called the Trauma-Informed Community Building Model. They got lucky and got the name first. (laughs) Um, So what they talk about, they identify five key challenges in trauma-deteriorated neighborhoods. Lack of trust and social cohesion. Two, a lack of stability and reliability and consistency. Do we see those in our neighborhoods? Three, disempowerment and a lack of sense of community ownership. That's huge, right? I'm stuck here. I didn't choose to live here. It's the only place I could afford, right? I don't like this neighborhood. That's disempowerment. There's no community ownership there. For an inability to vision the future, right? This is where I'm at, and I can't see any further ahead. I don't think it's going to change. And number five, the breadth and depth of community needs. And so for this model, they've adopted a handful of key principles, which you can maybe kind of see, but the first is do no harm. When And that's really important, right? We hear that and we're like, sure. But when you are working with folks who have experienced deep trauma, and then you have organizational policies that put people through the ringer, you're not staying in that commitment to do no harm, right? We eat, I could think of a few organizations, I'm not going to name because this is recorded near me, that absolutely traumatize people every time they come to the front desk. Every time they come to the front desk. And so that's not, if we're going to commit to do no harm, we're going to commit to be kind. We are going to commit to be loving. We're going we're to commit to all of those things, right? The second is acceptance. The acceptance principle is important because it empowers us to do no harm. Acceptance means that we're accepting people where they are and with what they bring, right? And we're accepting the fact that trauma is real. And that trauma exists on a spectrum. And just because the trauma that somebody comes in with doesn't get listed through the American Psychological Association doesn't mean that it's not valid. Right? And so we're going to acknowledge the hard lives that people have lived. We're going to acknowledge the good parts of their lives, the hard parts too. We're going to accept that and we're going to treat them well and commit not to further traumatize. The third thing is community empowerment. So community empowerment, those are intentional processes to make sure that you have indigenous leadership in the community, that people in the neighborhood have a voice, they're leading the charge, they have seats of power, right? My neighborhood's a diverse neighborhood, which means there's some white people there, but it should not be all white people leading this charge, right? It shouldn't be all college-educated people leading the charge. The university's in our neighborhood now. But I think it's still like 20% of the neighborhood has a degree. So should it be all degreed people leading this? 
because we honor people where they're at, right? We honor the experiences that they've had, the inherent talent that they have. Now, that doesn't mean that there's not some training or some walking alongside or some teaching, right? But we empower the community to do the work. And then the last thing is reflective processes. This is always the part that we don't really want to take the time to do because there are more pressing needs, right? We want to keep doing the work, doing the work, doing the work. We got to pause every now and then and make sure that the work is working. The only way we're going to find out if we aren't doing more harm is to ask if we're doing more harm and to ask that in a way that doesn't penalize the person, right? So the fact that I make you put um, a, a review to get the slides could look be like a penalty system, right? Even if you give me a bad score, I'm still going to send you the slides. So it's not. But we have to think about those things, right? What are the ways that we ask for feedback and how do we honor people in those to make sure that they're not penalized for being truthful, right? If somebody comes in and says, this is not working and these are the reasons why, and then we stop inviting them to meetings, right? We put them in the corner and say, it's not your turn right now, right? That's a... We're not going to we're not going to get honest feedback anymore. We'll be right back. But first, a word from our sponsor. Hello, I'm Paul Miles, president and CEO of We Raise Foundation. We Raise invests in people and organizations that serve at the intersection of poverty, violence and inequality. We start by acknowledging that change begins with we. We are in this together and it's going to take our love and our compassion and dedication to solve the problems facing communities today. We invite you to be part of that with us and encourage you to visit WeRaise.org to find out how you can become involved and be a partner with WeRaise. So this is one one model, okay? And we can talk more about that in a second. The other model that is a really great one is the self-healing communities model. Okay, so this one centers community, right? Literally in their model, but also it really does center the people in the community. Uh, this is built on a model that um, Robert Chaskin created that is um, it's the commu- uh, building community capacity model. OK, the community capacity model is a very institutional approach with the self-healing community model. What they did is they went back and made it more grassroots oriented. OK, so they adapted it. Um, and a lot of what's in this one is really helpful to you. The other thing that I really like about this one is that one of the doctors, Dr. Anda, from the original ACES study was a co-author of this study and report in developing the model. So you've got one of the original guys looking at childhood trauma, stepping in and saying, hey, we really do need community, not even community oriented, but community born responses um, and stepped into the work of helping make it happen. So there are six key principles um, for this model. Inclusive leadership with downward accountability. That's what we just talked about, right? Learning communities. So we're all learning together. Emergent capabilities. Trauma-informed engagement. Right-fit solutions given available resources. And hope and efficacy. What you'll see between these two models is a lot of crossover, right? And I think you could develop your own little model for your neighborhood, for your organization, that pulls from both of those and certainly that pulls from some other um, some other models as well. There's another um, and let me make sure I tell you the right name. The building community resilience model. That's another really great one. It is an institutional approach. 
right? So it's looking how to build those cross-sector partnerships. Um, what I appreciate, a few things I appreciate about this, one is the inclusion of hope, right? That that is a key principle for doing this work in the community is that we are going to stay rooted in hope. We're going to stay rooted in this idea that this is really possible, right? We're not chasing a pipe dream. We're not doing it, believing we're going to be here 60 years from now, still doing the same work. We're believing that it's going to make a change. Inclusive leadership with downward accountability. We talked about that, um, but it's so important. And so what, um, what I want us to have some time to do with these two models is to look at um, how do we actually, how do we actually use this, right? Um, and what does this look like? And so what I'm working on um, right now, I'm rolling onto the board of the neighborhood association in my neighborhood. And so um, it's not a homeowners, it's a neighborhood association, right? And the idea is that you are um, protecting the neighbors and empowering the neighbors and um, especially for us, as the university continues to encroach, there's been a little bit of gatekeeping. Um, historically, that has almost decimated the neighborhood association <laughs> uh, because there's a lot of opinions around that. But we're in a place, right, after the last, um, the last role with the university, um, the organization just about fell apart, right, because there was so much fighting and anger. And so there's been several years of nobody coming Right. And there's finally there's been some people on the board that are moving in positive directions. Right. And there's a little more energy coming. And so I'm stepping in as well and saying, hey, how can we make sure if we want a more diverse group of people to come to these meetings? These are some principles that are going to help us do that. Right. So what does it look like as a neighborhood association to have inclusive leadership? Right. And to answer not just the city council people or to the folks who have nice houses in the neighborhood who show up and demand answers. But how do I make sure that I'm downwardly accountable, right? Our whole board is accountable to the folks who rent from the slumlord down the street, right? Who really feel like they have no voice. There's a house down the street that's condemned that I just heard the other day. There's been a family living in because the landlord rented it to them cash, kind of under the table rental deal, it's the only thing they could afford, right? So you want to talk about marginalized, no voice. They're living in a condemned house, getting evicted. If you report the landlord ahead of time, which I didn't hear about until after they were evicted, but, but I, in thinking through this, like if you report ahead of time, they're for sure evicted, right? And, and, and then there's no roof over their head at all. And there were children in the house, right? But now also there's some space now that they're out that I think the association has the power to hold that landlord to some accountability, right? And so how do we make sure that those things are happening, but also make sure that the folks in those situations are on the board, right? Because when people from the community are on the board, the board's advocating for the right things, right? If folks in the community don't care about a green bike path, Right. It doesn't mean we don't work on the bike path, but there might be some more pressing issues that we that we look at. Um, do, do, do. Oh, I forgot about this. OK, let's go back to this real quick and then we're going to do some of that. So this is a really great thing about relationships um, and the power of relationships and why we need to build community. So in the self-healing communities uh, model, as they did the study, they found that adults with two or more people in their lives that they can rely on for tangible help. These are a few statistics I thought were really interesting. They're 65% less likely to go hungry 
because of lack of funds for food. That makes sense, right? 53%, this one I thought was interesting, they're 53% less likely to have insulin-dependent diabetes. That's a very specific health outcome as a result of relationships. They're 94% less likely to report depression for all or most of the last month. Now, is friendship the answer to depression? No. Okay, there is reality to um, to all of the things that surround depression. So I don't want you to hear that as a minimization, but it is really interesting that they were able to track that, right? Situational depression is real, right? And it's different than some of the deeper long-term clinical depression that folks experience. Both are valid, right? They look a little different. 62% less likely to experience symptoms of a serious or persistent mental illness. And 59% less likely to report poor health for more than half of the last month. When I think about my friends at the, um, we have, I help coordinate a, a winter emergency shelter. So for a couple months of the year, there's overflow space. Um, and we have residents that are there for the whole three months. And when I think about them, they are isolated, right? Our higher functioning guys might have a few friends that they're able to, to, to kind of move around in life with. But for some of our guys who have experienced the deepest trauma, they could barely, they could barely stand to sit at the table and eat with anybody, right? Because there is so much trauma and so much hurt and sometimes so much mental illness and so many things that are present. And so we see that isolation and here we see some of the results of that isolation, right? And what changes, at least for those few months, where they come in and maybe we can establish some relational network for them. Um, a few other thoughts that play into community building um, as we've worked on this in the neighborhood. Um, one is the idea of social capital, right? So when we're in relationship, there are some things that I have that, that might be helpful to you, right? There are relationships that I have. There are um, sometimes physical things connections, right? Those things are really important. And so as we build a, a network and we build relationships, we're able to press into this. Um, are any of you familiar with the idea of weak ties? Okay. So what's really cool, the idea of weak ties is that um, you and I might be close friends, right? Um, and then you might be a friend of a friend of a friend, right? So you would be a weak tie. I'm not going to call you and ask how your day is going, if I see you at Walmart, I might wave to you, but I might not because we haven't ever really met, right? We're a loose connection. And what they found uh, research-wise is that weak ties are actually more beneficial to people in need than close relationships, right? So there's this whole theory, the strength of weak ties. Um, Grandavetter, I think, is the guy who did that research. And so it's great to look into. And so it's this idea that if you call me and say, hey, um, I really need a job, right? And this is my experience. And I go, uh, I really don't know anybody there, but I mean, maybe I can ask around, right? And so I haven't benefited you directly. But when I start to reach out to my network and network and network, right? We're three or four lines separated, but you might have a cousin who works in the industry that she's in. And all of a sudden we've got a job that's connected, right? And so we see the real power of this. People who are socially isolated don't always have access to those weak ties, right? If their network isn't broad and isn't diverse, right? And if people aren't treating them with dignity and honor and taking their request as serious, 
and even sometimes not even waiting for a request, right? So like if we think about our friends, we act on their behalf without them asking. And so if we're in real relationship with people in our communities, we're working on their behalf, right? And so that's where the strength of weak ties come in. And then this idea of third place, it's people, um, especially if you're a um, missional community person, everybody in the missional community area talks about third place, third place. It is a good thing. So the idea of the third place is that your first place is home. Your second place is work, right? Your third place is whatever other place you enter into relationship with people and that we need third places. And so when I say missional community folks, I mean like your evangelism missional community folks, right? Um, Some of your churches may be doing this. (laughs) The big press is you need to have a third place where you're going and evangelizing the world, right? And um, there's some merit to that. Also, though, for community building, we need third places where we can meet and gather with our neighbors, right? Our neighbors aren't always going to know us and trust us enough to come into our home. (laughs) But if there are other places we identify in the community where relationships can occur, then we can start to see some of these weak ties formed and we can start to build social capital, right? So that might be a park. It might be a barbershop. It might be the corner store. um, It might be the school, right? If a lot of people connect at the school, that's a great mom network kind of place, right? It might be community events that happen. Um, We've started really just as probably my favorite thing that I do that also has the least impact um, in the neighborhood in very like uh, tangible ways is that we do a massive trunk or treat, right? And we don't do it on Halloween because I think kids should get to go trick or treat and get candy two times, okay? So we do it on another day. But I mean, we have hundreds of kids come, which is a lot for us. I know some of y'all are in big cities, but um, it's a time when the neighborhood comes together that otherwise they wouldn't and they get to bump into each other and meet each other and see neighbors and be like, oh, I've seen you on the lawn before, but we've never talked. Or, hey, I've seen you when I pick my kid up at school. Or we've ridden the bus together, right? And so nobody gets out of poverty because of trunk or treat. Nobody finds a job because, if anything, they have to go to the dentist because of trunk or treat, right? Like, we are not supporting the ultimate health and well-being of the community. Uh, But we are supporting relational connection, right? And so sometimes we could do things that are purely fun that really make a deep impact, a deep, deep impact. And so at the end of the day, really, it comes to relationship, which is the simplest and the most complex answer to trauma-informed community building, right? And to, to creating healing spaces in our community. If we started out with saying friendship, hospitality, and relationship matters at the beginning of our time together, it would be kind of like, eh, okay, yeah, I know that, Right. But when we really start to press into the data of it, like it matters, it matters so much. And if we think about our own lives and the people who have relationally kind of undergirded us through our lives and come along and acted in really critical spaces, if they were gone, especially if you come from an unprivileged background, right? You can see how much of a line you may have been teetering on. Right. And as we think about other folks who have not thrived and think of one or two points in their life that it's like, man, if things were a little bit different right then, if things if 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 this person had been there, I wish you had known this person 10 years ago. 
because things would have been different, right? We see the power of relationship. But for us as a strategic group of CCDA people, right, we are committed to community development. We are committed to honoring the image of God in every person we see. We have the hope and the belief that communities of shalom are possible, right? Like that when God says, or when Jesus prays, your kingdom come, like we believe that's possible. And while it may not fully be here in our time, we can certainly work towards it right now, right? We can, we can plant those seeds and we can water those seeds and tend the garden. Then these are the things that we're committed to. Um, so we talked about the neighborhood association. That's one way that I'm, I'm, I'm pressing into this. Um, and after, in the after school program that I work with, making sure that all of our volunteers get this, right? Like we don't need you to swoop in and think that just loving the babies are going to fix everything. Also, we don't need you to be in their business because it's not your business, right? Like there are some boundaries that every family's story is on display with every person that comes in. We have a responsibility to protect our people. Um, but to help folks know this like I tell our tutors every semester, if they don't hear anything else, they hear our parents are partners, right? We are one stop in the village that loves the children in this community. We're not doing the work that they left behind. We're not saying they're doing anything wrong. We're not saying any of those things because I believe that our parents love their kids more than anything, right? They just do. That's what happens when you have children. You love them. And I'm going to trust and honor that, right? And that they might not have great expressions of that, possibly because of their own trauma. But I'm going to honor the image of God in them who is a good father, right? Who is a good parent and a good caretaker. And I'm going to believe that about my parents and help believe it into existence, right? And how do we support you in that? And how do we love you and draw you closer to the father as you parent, parent your kids, and so there's spaces that we're able, and after-school programs, real specific, but as we think about the areas that we work with folks, we can have a commitment to educate our volunteers well and not let them off the hook, right? You don't get to just show up and pretend like it's fine and move on. Like, I need you to understand a little bit of what our community has been through and honor that. Um, with the shelter, we're coming up on another season, and we did some things last year to test out um, giving the guys a little more ownership and leadership, but also my friend and I who coordinated had just taken over from a couple who had done it a long time. And so you don't, you know, you got to be respectful. Um, and so, they, and they had laid a great foundation, right? They had laid a great foundation, but there were definite, it was a definite power hierarchy, um, of who made the rules. And so now we're entering into the space of what does it look like for our guys at the shelter to have ownership, um, and to be able to lead well, right. And to be able to help set policy. Um, and so one of the things that we did last year, just as a real specific example, we do bus passes at the shelter, right? And so, um, but the rule always was you get a, you get a, a day, a day pass to go do what you need to do. You have to have a reason to get a bus pass. So you have to tell us why, like, or do you have a job interview? Do you have whatever? We'll give you the bus pass. You have to bring it back, um, when it's disposed, right? When you've spent the money and then you can have another one. So what happened is that every day everybody would have an interview, right? And there was no way to validate that. Like, I'm not trying to catch anybody in a lie and say, well, let me call and jeopardize your interview by saying I'm with the homeless shelter and I'm just verifying that Jerry has an interview. Like, we're not doing that. 
And so we were like, this this system is broken. One, we're spending a ton of money on bus passes. And two, like we're forcing people to to lie about it so that they can have equitable access. It's not a fair system. And so we made a shift and basically said you could get, it was two or three, two or three bus passes in a week for your first two weeks here. Once you've been with us for two weeks, we'll give you a month pass. And then it's just no questions asked. Like we're going to trust and honor that you do what you need to with it, right? You can't get another one for a month. So if you lose it, I'm sorry, right? There is personal accountability at play, personal responsibility. Um, And we want to make sure you're here, right? If we gave everybody a month pass on their first day, we would be giving out a lot of bus passes. <laughs> um, so they have like a two-week waiting period. And it was one of the guys who asked at first, hey, can we get month passes? And it was like, I don't know. <laughs> like, I need to ask the budget people, but I think that's a great idea, right? And it offered a little bit of honor and dignity in that process, right? And so when we look at trauma-informed pieces, when we look at those models, there is an acceptance of the situation, right? And a commitment to not further traumatize. Folks have a conscience, right? When you're getting help and you recognize you're lying to them every day to get a bus pass, that impacts somebody, right? And so in some ways, that wasn't a real healing, helpful policy for folks because it put them between a rock and a hard place. Um, And so we pressed into how, what does that look like? And so I, I hope that we'll have a lot of things shift that way this year. For churches, are uh, any any pastors, pastoral ministry? So as we think about what does it look like to be a trauma-informed church, right? Not just for the folks who are coming in off the street asking for help, but for your members as well. Because when you think about that broad spectrum of trauma that we talked about, most people in our lives have experienced something in that spectrum, Right? Some people carry it longer than others. But what does it look like to make sure that our churches are safe spaces? That whoever comes in has the ability to thrive, right? That, um, oh, what's his, I'm terrible with names right off the bat. Um, the guy who spoke last night that does Church Under the Bridge and talked about inviting the guy to come up. And they sat him up there with that electric guitar and he played and played and played, right? That's inclusive leadership. He was a member of the worship team. He was a member, a full flight. Like, I'm sure he showed up to practices. He did all the things and he was there. Right. And so as as we invite the community into our churches, right, do they play a, a subsidiary role or are they actually part of the church? Right. There's a church I know well that they have Sunday service and then they have a Wednesday night dinner. Right. And so for Wednesday night dinner, it's community dinner, which means it's predominantly homeless and low income folks who come. And the question came up one day, why don't more of our Wednesday night people come to church on Sunday morning? That's a good question, right? But then I was like, well, I think they have church on Wednesday night. You sing, you preach, they eat. Like, that's church. So why do they have to come to us? Right? We're lamenting the fact that this predominantly minority Wednesday evening dinner doesn't want to come to the predominantly white church service on Sunday morning where people are in polo shirts, right? It's not a dressy congregation, but it's not it's not super relaxed. Maybe our better question is why aren't more Sunday morning people going to worship on Wednesday night? Right? And so we have like we have those splits and and that's where we're not moving from a trauma informed place. Right? Sunday morning services can be traumatic for some people if they've had church trauma, right? 
But there's something about walking into that low-key space where they're just there, right? There's always somebody a little bit, a, a little bit um, louder than they are, right? And so you just know that you fit in. <laughs> um, and there's beauty to that, right? There's beauty to cultivating these spaces where people just get to be who they are, where we love them well. But it's not going to happen by accident, and it's not going to happen easily because we love comfort. Right? We love comfort. We love people who are like us. We love meetings where people think like us. Right? If we're in a meeting and we're all on the same page, we're going to get in and out of there real quick and it's going to be great. You get too much of a spread, it's a nightmare, right? <laughs> Nobody looks forward to that. But that's a healthy meeting in some ways, right? Doesn't mean you can't set some structure and some boundaries. But there needs to be some people in your meetings, in my meetings, who have never been to a meeting before, right? Who don't think automatically, wow, you're important if you've got a meeting. Well, no, I need you at that meeting because you're important, <laughs> right? Like you, you, you have it. You don't need to earn a space there. You deserve a space there. You need a space there and we need you to be there, right? And so there, those are some of the things that we have to press into um, as we think about this. A thinking about trauma-informed community building isn't a fix, right? It's not going to be a program that you're going to build and say, we're instituting this program and it's going to address trauma and create a healing space in our community. Trauma-informed community building is the way that we do everything that we do in our community, right? It's the method behind how we build relationships. It's the principles, the core values, and that deeper understanding of this is the way that we interact with people that we love people well and that we build whatever it is that we're building, right? Churches, organizations, circles of influence and, and friendships, that those are sustainable because they're rooted and grown from the community. And thank you for listening. Big thanks to Dana Carr for sharing her expertise on cultivating healing spaces, strategies for wholeness and well-being on a community level. Hello, I'm Paul Miles, president and CEO of We Raise Foundation. We Raise invests in people and organizations that serve at the intersection of poverty, violence, and inequality. We start by acknowledging that change begins with we. We are in this together, and it's going to take our love and our compassion and dedication to solve the problems facing communities today. We invite you to be part of that with us and encourage you to visit weraise.org to find out how you can become involved and be a partner with WeRaise. Thank you for listening to the CCDA podcast. Don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. This podcast is produced by Dan Portnoy in association with Scott Overbeck.